Thank you. I knew that this morning was going to be hard for me for a couple reasons, and um, <clears throat> feels like a special privilege every time we get to do something like we've done this morning. It just so happens um, I've known these particular families for a really long time, and um, <clears throat> I think, to be honest, every Sunday gets a little harder. <laughs> so I'm excited to be here this morning and to celebrate our father on Father's Day. Um, I don't know, they really thought of that before until this week, thinking about <clears throat> Father's Day and thinking about what we would do today with the dedication and thinking about the cool, the really, really cool thing about <clears throat> what we're doing this morning and about our Heavenly Father is that It's the one dad that won't mess up. And the one dad that won't make a mistake. And the one dad that <clears throat> always comes through and whose promises are always kept. That's pretty cool. And no matter what your experience of dad is coming in today, we can say for those of you who claim God as your heavenly father, that's a pretty good deal. You've got a dad that always comes through, that always keeps his promises, that's always there for you, that never makes a mistake, who will never stop loving you no matter what you do. That's a good deal. And I would hope that as we celebrate Father's Day, that for godly dads, we would be excited about dads that remind us of our Heavenly Father and live like that and point us to Him. And that for those of us who maybe have a different experience of dad than that, that we would claim our heavenly father and say, he's perfect and he's mine and he loves me no matter what. And I trust him. It's a pretty great deal for us. And it's a little nice, I'll just say as a dad to... Um, have the freedom based on Scripture to say, I don't have to live up to that. <clears throat> I want to live up to that, and I want to try to point my kids to that, but I don't have to be the perfect dad because I can point them to one and say, you have a perfect Heavenly Father. My job is not to be perfect. My job is to just point you to the right dad because I'm just the substitute for a while. I'm just dad on his behalf. So I try to do the best that I can. So happy Father's Day, dads. Thanks for being here with us today. Appreciate it. It's always good to be with you. And this morning, we're, <clears throat> we're not teaching about Father's Day. We're not teaching a father's sermon. We're continuing in our study in the book of Luke. But I'd like to start with a question that seemingly has nothing to do with that. Is that okay? This is probably phrase this question more for our 50 and up crowd, of which we have a handful, I'd say. I don't know. I don't want to guess anybody's age, but I think we've got a few that are over 50. I'm going to, <clears throat> I'm going to read three names, and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Um, <clears throat> Fred Hayes, Jack Swigert, James Lovell. 
Anybody know what those three names have in common? They're astronauts. That's right. They're all astronauts. They were all members of the crew of Apollo 13. You may know them better as Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton. Um, All astronauts, all members of Apollo 13. Now, some of you know all about Apollo 13 because you lived through it. Some of you know all about Apollo 13 because you watched Tom Hanks live through it. Some of you have no idea what we're talking about. So let me just give you a little background. Apollo 13 is the seventh manned mission into space through the Apollo um, program. It was the third to land on the moon. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was supposed to be the third mission to land on the moon, but it didn't. On April 11th, 1970, they took off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida, launched with the plan to land on the moon. But two days later, an oxygen tank exploded, which is bad in space, and the original intention of landing on the moon was gone. The original plan turned into a rescue plan. Now this was all about just getting them home without losing them. It was not the easiest rescue because you can't exactly send someone up there to rescue them. The astronauts had lost a lot of power to the ship. They'd lost heat. There was a shortage of water. Very quickly, they were running out of breathable air. These are all problems in normal life. These are huge problems when you're hurtling away from the earth in a rocket. Why are we talking about Apollo 13? Why are we talking about something that happened to these three men 46 years ago? What does that possibly have to do with the book of Luke? Here's where I'm going with this. God's original plan for the world was not to create a world of illness and evil. Do you believe that? It was not the plan from the beginning. God's original plan was not to create a world of brokenness and pain. Two days into the Apollo mission, something went horribly wrong, and it changed the original plan, and it became a rescue plan. Two pages into the narrative of God's gospel, something went horribly wrong. Sin entered the world, and God's original plan turned into a rescue plan. It's actually a very similar story. This didn't surprise God that this happened early in Genesis. didn't surprise him at all, but it did break his heart. It did grieve him, and immediately he set about to put it right. That's what we see in the book of Luke, actually, is God's rescue plan in action. In the book of Luke, we actually see God's rescuer in all of the gospel accounts, the story in the life of Jesus. We see God's rescuer sent to put it right, to restore what we broke. And the life of Jesus gives us a preview of what the original plan was going to be like. The life of Jesus gives us some idea of what it could have been like as he came to restore our broken relationship with God. And this morning we're going to see in the life of Jesus his heart for how things were meant to be and also his power and authority to set them right again. So before we open our Bibles this morning to the book of Luke, would you just pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be here this morning to open your word, and I just pray this morning that you would show us who you are this morning as we read your word together. Lord, would you show us, expose for us your heart for the world? Would you show us what it means to trust you and take you at your word? And Lord, I pray that your spirit now would help us to understand your word in a new way that changes us and transforms our life. Would you do that this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 7? If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's fine. You can just listen. Or if you look around, we've brought some for you and put them on the seats around you. You're welcome to grab one of those. Whether you grab one right now or whether you grab one later, you're welcome to just take that home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that this morning because we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, which is in the New Testament. If you're using our Bible, it's going to be toward the back, page 863. That's where you're going to find us this morning. We're going to start in chapter, <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to read two stories together this morning, two stories that show us the heart of Jesus in two different ways. What moves the heart of Jesus? That's what we're going to look at this morning. The first thing that we're going to see is Jesus is moved by faith. He's moved by faith. This is a great story. Read with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he's not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, They found the servant well. There's a lot of stories like this in the gospel accounts. I think as we read it, we kind of like figure out the ending if you spend much time in scripture. Why do you think Luke records this? Why does Luke record this particular story? Certainly, it's an example of Jesus doing a miraculous healing, which we see quite a bit of in scripture. But I don't think that's all there is to this. There are a number of things I think we should consider. One of them is, this is one of three stories in Luke's gospel about a centurion who seems to have genuine faith in Jesus as the Son of God. This is the first of three. There's a couple reasons I think that's significant. One is, it's not only the Jews that believe. And if you know the sequel to Luke that he writes is the book of Acts, which we went through together not too long ago. And the whole idea of the book of Acts is that the gospel is going out to everyone, the Gentiles included, meaning the non-Jewish people. 
God's salvation and God's rescue is offered to everyone. If you look at the sermon series title of our study of the book of Luke, it says, A Savior for Everyone. Luke's whole theme in writing the book is that Jesus came to save. And not just save a select few, he came to save everybody. I think it's significant that he mentions the centurion. He also seems to be setting up some significant contrast here. When the centurion wants his servant to be healed, his servant who's about to die, who's really important to him, he doesn't approach Jesus. What does he do? He sends some Jewish leaders to approach Jesus on his behalf. Why? Because he's not Jewish. So he says, you guys have the authority to make this kind of request of one of your teachers, of one of your rabbis, so would you do this for me? Would you go and make this request of Jesus for me? And when the Jewish leaders come before Jesus, what do they say to him? They say, Jesus, you should help him. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy of being helped. Because he's been kind to us, he's shown favor to our people. And because he built us a synagogue. This guy's taking care of us, we should take care of him. He's kind of earned it, right? He's worthy of being helped. You ought to help him. And Jesus comes along with them when they make this argument. However, the centurion seems to have a different opinion of his own worthiness. Because as Jesus is coming to his house, what does he do? He sends more people out on his behalf. Now he sends some friends out to say, oh, no, 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 don't come into my house. Why? Because I'm not worthy of you. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. He knew that despite his position and despite the authority that he held in the Roman government, he understood that Jesus is on a totally different level from him. He's like, hey, Jesus, I don't need you to come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I just need you to heal my servant, if you would. We see that Jesus is moved by the faith of the centurion, right? It actually says he marvels at his faith. Because the centurion doesn't just say, I believe that you're a great man of God. The centurion puts something significant on the line. He says it with his actions, not just his words. You see what he does? Not only does he know who to go to, he's like, I can't heal my servant. I can't make him better. There's only one person I know of. When he heard of Jesus, he said, that's the guy I need. I need Jesus. But I can't go to him myself because I'm not worthy. And when Jesus starts to come to him, he says, no, 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 no. Just say the word and he'll be better. Why is that such a big deal? Well, that's significant faith, I would think. If Jesus were coming to my house, I think I'd let him come. If my wife or my family were sick, someone in my family, I needed them to be healed, I'd let Jesus come into my house to heal somebody, right? Certainly in this day and age, the understanding of healing would be that you need to have physical contact with someone in order to heal them. You'd have to lay hands on them or something. That's what a, that's what a priest or rabbi would have done to pray for healing. But the centurion says, I don't think you need to do that. I think if you say it, it'll happen because I get what you're about, Jesus, because I too am a man under authority. And because I work for the government and I represent Rome, when I say something, it gets done. 
So when I say to somebody, go there, they go there. Or come here, they come here. Because I represent the authority of Rome. And Jesus, I believe it's the same with you. That you are a man under authority. I represent Rome and you represent God. So if you say it, it'll happen. And Jesus says, wow. Wow. That guy really believes. He really believes. I think of this in the context of, like we know the one disadvantage that we have in reading Scripture is that we know who Jesus is. That name is really loaded for us. But think of it in this context. He's just learning about him. People are just getting excited about Jesus and starting to talk about him. And this guy gets it on a totally different level. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. You don't need to show up. Just say it. It'll happen. And Jesus is saying, I have not seen anybody with this kind of faith. And my question is, who does this guy think Jesus is? Who do you think he believes Jesus is? I think he gets it. I think he gets it more than most people get it. Because his story conveys his heart of who he thinks Jesus is. He says, I think you represent God on earth. Pretty accurate, I would say. I think you are here on God's behalf. So if you say it, it will happen. And the difference between what most people see and what Jesus sees is that people have applauded the centurion and the Jews have argued on his behalf based on what he has done, right? He's worthy to be helped. We ought to help him because look at all the things he's done for us. The centurion says, I'm not worthy of any of that. I don't deserve this. I just believe you can do it. The Jews applaud what he's done and Jesus applauds his faith. Jesus applauds what he believes about him. Incidentally, the servant gets healed. Somehow that feels like a postscript on this story, that the servant is actually healed. How does it happen? Well, it doesn't say. He doesn't record any of the language of healing, doesn't record a prayer for the servant. Jesus just says, wow, that guy really gets it. And then the friends go home and the servant is healed. He's better. I don't think that the healing of the servant is the important part of the story. Certainly it was significant to the centurion. Certainly I think that Jesus is saying, yeah, I ought to do this for this guy. Look at this faith. Not look at what he's done, but look at his faith. And Jesus shows his power and authority to heal at a word from a distance and says, yes, what you believe about me is true. I am here on behalf of God under his authority. But I think the reason that Luke records the story is because of the testimony of the centurion. The words of the centurion to say, this is what faith looks like. Faith looks like, I believe that you are here as a representative of God and that you speak on his behalf and that you can heal at a word. And I believe that I'm not worthy of you, but I believe that you might heal my servant anyway. He basically encapsulated the whole gospel. Like, via his friends talking to Jesus. That's serious faith. We'll come back and talk about that a little bit more, but there's a second story here that I want us to read. We see that Jesus is moved by faith. He's wowed by it. 
It says he marvels. Some translation says he was astonished at it. Jesus is also moved by compassion. This is where that Apollo 13 thing comes in. When things aren't the way they're supposed to be, they're not how God intended them originally. Look with me starting in verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Hold on, let me read that again. We read scripture a lot. We get really used to this. Let me read this sentence again and see if anything stands out to you as being odd. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, you think? And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The reason I read that twice is because we can get really used to reading God's word. We can just read stuff and be like, Yeah, that happened. That happened. And look at the response of people. Fear and amazement and glorifying God, a dead man sat up and spoke. Wow. Why? Why did this happen? Why did Jesus do this? Jesus comes into this new town, and he's followed by not only his disciples, his followers, but also just a great crowd of people. Why? Because everywhere Jesus goes, something crazy happens. And so there's a whole bunch of people following him, and as they're entering the town, they meet a funeral procession that's coming out of the town. And here's this man who's about to be buried, who's the only son of a mom who is already a widow. She's already lost her husband, and now she's lost her only son. She's obviously deeply grieved. She has nobody to care for her. There's a big crowd of people in the funeral procession, but she doesn't have her husband to care for her. She doesn't have her son to care for anymore. And it says Jesus is moved by compassion for her. And here's what I think is happening. Jesus sees this as he walks into the town and says, that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how we set this up. This was not the original plan. The plan was not for wives to lose their husbands and for moms to lose their sons. I didn't want this. And the world looks like this, not because it reflects God's design for how it was meant to be, but because it reflects our rebellion against Him and it reflects our poor judgment and our poor choices. And now it looks like us. And Jesus says that's not right. So what does he do? He gives the crowd a preview 
of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. Jesus stops the procession and he brings the man back to life. And the man sits up and he starts talking. Now, I don't know why Luke doesn't write down what he says. Because don't you want to know what he says? What's the first thing you say after you undie? <clears throat> he doesn't write it down. What does Luke write down? He sits up, he starts talking, and what does Jesus do? He gives him to his mother. That's the heart of Jesus. Deep compassion for the grieving mom and widow. And he says, that's not right. I can fix that. Here, mom, here's your son. He's alive. Not only is the widow's son restored to her, but the power and the authority of Jesus continues to be on display, continues to demonstrate itself to those that are witnessing his ministry, the people that are following him around. And the crowd is freaking out. They're terrified and they're amazed. And you can understand why. Because despite the fact that Jesus keeps doing amazing things, who would have seen this coming? Like, who sees Jesus stop the funeral procession and goes, I know what's going to happen? Nobody sees this coming, right? This is unbelievable. But they've all seen it. And what do they do? They give praise to God. In fact, <clears throat> not long after this, a few verses later, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask, Hey, are you, you know, the guy? Are you the guy that John has been talking about? Because John would like to know. John's in prison. What does Jesus say? He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah who's using these words to describe the Messiah and what he will be like, and Jesus quotes it back to them. They say, are you the guy? Jesus says, yeah, I'm the guy. The dead are raised. The deaf hear. The lepers are healed. And those who witness the miracle attribute it to God. And they say, this guy speaks and does ministry on on behalf of God. He is God's representative. Interesting, just what the centurion already knew. Now everyone sees this happen and they're like, wow. And the exact quote is, God has visited his people. That's what they say. God has visited his people. We talk about that every Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. God has visited his people. They got it, at least in part, which is why it makes it so much more sad at the end of the book of Luke, which we looked at at Easter. And do you remember what it says? Luke chapter 19, you don't have to go there. <clears throat> Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and he's crying. And he's saying, this city and these people are going to be destroyed. Why? Because you did not know the day of your visitation. They saw it. They even said it. God has visited his people. And some of them got it. 
and some of them became followers of Jesus, but so many of them saw it and knew it and didn't see it and didn't believe it. And it broke Jesus' heart of compassion that people didn't know that he was there. What we experience today for you and I is not what God designed for us. It's not what he planned. What the widow, the widow in our story experienced was not God's master plan for her life. What happened in Orlando was not what God created from the beginning. We were created to be in relationship with God without sin, without shame, in his presence. And this mess is just a reflection of our own hearts. And it breaks his heart to see it. And if we are followers of Christ, it ought to break our heart too. And we need to understand this. Because when things happen like have happened over the last couple of weeks, we have to be very very careful about how we respond because we ought to respond with the heart of God in these situations and be grieved and be sad for a world that reflects a heart of sin and not the heart of God. You don't have to spend very much time on Facebook to see Christian brothers and sisters who are just pouring out hate on people who are deeply hurting and grieving. And that ought to grieve us too. Because we are his representatives to a world that doesn't know him. Jesus looked at the widow and said, it's not supposed to be like that. You're not supposed to lose your son. But God loved us so much that he gave his son, his only son. That's what his love looks like that whoever would place their faith and trust in him like the centurion did, you don't have to show up, you just have to say it. I know I'm not worthy, I know you might do it anyway. I trust you because I believe that you speak and act on behalf of God. God gave his only son that whoever would trust in him would never die, ever, but would live forever with him as he intended from the beginning, the original plan. Isn't that great? That is good news in a world that's really hurting. I think Luke's point here is to continue to say to his friend Theophilus, I want you to be able to trust what you've heard about Jesus. These things really happen. I want you to know what he's like. I want you to know what people said about him. It doesn't mean we can't take some things away from the people we see in this passage because we need to know those truths about Jesus. But I look at this and I think, I don't know about you, but I want to have faith that makes Jesus say, wow. I mean, don't you? Wouldn't you love if someone wrote that sentence about you, that you had such faith that Jesus was like, wow. I don't see a lot of that to live a life of active faith, of powerful faith, to just live it out. A life that says, I really take you at your word, Lord. I really believe you. And I believe 
that I'm not worthy of being loved and I believe that you love me anyway. I believe I don't have to earn your love because I already have it. So I'll take you at your word and I'll live a life of deep faith and I'm going to trust you for my salvation and I'm going to trust you with my life. And I'm going to live my life for you. I'm going to surrender it to you. It's yours to do with what you will. And I just trust that you'll take care of me. Don't you want to live like that? And have Jesus say, nice, wow. I don't know about you, but I want to be moved by compassion when I see that things are not the way God intended them to be originally, to live a life of deep compassion, to be defined by that as Jesus was, as ambassadors for Christ, as a representative of him to a world that needs to know how much he loves them. How are they going to know if not for me and you? I'm going to comfort people with cancer, to mourn with people who are grieving, to care for those who have no one to care for them. Shouldn't God's people do that? Because isn't that what God would do? Jesus offers hope to everybody. Hope to everyone who's in desperation. That was the whole point of the rescue mission. To offer hope in a hopeless situation. The healing of the servant, the raising of the man from the dead, that's just a preview of what it was meant to be from the beginning and what what God has set apart for us with him in eternity. This is what it could have been like. This is what it will be like. And Jesus gives us just a little glimpse. It's like a trailer for a movie that we get to be a part of in eternity. Jesus' work of restoration, his work on the cross, that work would set everything right. That would be for everybody, everybody that would put their trust in him, not just the Jews, not just the people that get themselves cleaned up and get into church. Everybody. At the cross, Jesus said, you divorced yourself from me and now I'm going to make it right. Three days later, the empty tomb gave its own message. Now for those who put their trust in me, you don't even have to be afraid of death because I just conquered that. You are mine. You can trust me. I've got this. So live a life of deep faith, powerful faith, and live a life of compassion that represents that Jesus to the world. That's what we're meant to do. I think about those astronauts on Apollo 13. You watch that movie. For those of us that weren't around when it happened and didn't live out that drama, I think, man, that's scary what they went through. Two days into space and something explodes? That's scary. How many times on that journey did it feel like this is not going to go well? This is not going to work out. They were cold. They were scared. They had to do some weird stuff like make a carbon dioxide filter out of like spare parts they could rip off the spaceship. April 17th, six days after they launched, after they flew 137 nautical miles beyond the moon, which to date, the furthest anyone has ever been from the earth. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. They came back safe. Wasn't the original plan, but the rescue mission was a success. They all came back safe. Now, if you watch that movie and you don't know the story, which I just gave away, so sorry, 
The first time I watched the movie, I, I didn't know the story of Apollo 13. I don't know how it's going to end. But if you've lived through it, and you're watching the movie, I mean, it's exciting, but you're like, I know how this ends. I'm not that nervous that Tom Hanks is not coming back to earth. We know how it ends for us. Jesus was the rescue mission, and the rescue mission was a success. We know how it ends. You put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're going to be okay. It could be scary, it could be hard, there could be all sorts of hurdles that you have to overcome along the way, but how worried can you really be when you know how it ends? So that's the question. How worried can you be if you know how it ends? And the second question is, do you know how it ends for you? Do you know how it ends? Because the real question is, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And do you believe that he's here on God's authority and speaks and acts on his behalf and that the cross means something significant and the empty tomb means something significant? Let's live like we know how it ends. Can we do that? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you're so good. You're so good to us. What a great story, the good news of the gospel. I pray for those who know you here this morning, Lord, that we would live like we know the ending of the story. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for caring for us. We thank you for sending your only son, we pray that you would give us deep faith and deep compassion for a world that needs you. We pray this in your name. Amen.